Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Today, I have a very special episode, the first in a series celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Brookings Institution this year. In upcoming shows, I'll be talking to previous and current presidents and scholars about the history and the future of this organization. In this first episode of the series, I'm honored to have in the studio two of the leaders of our institution. They are the co-chairs of our board of trustees, John L. Thornton and David M. Rubenstein. Among their numerous affiliations, Mr. Thornton is also chairman of the board of Barrett Gold Corporation and a professor and director of the Global Leadership Program at the Tsinghua University School of Economics and Management in Beijing. Mr. Rubenstein is also co-founder and co-CEO of the Carlisle Group and chairman of the board of the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts here in Washington, D.C. Gentlemen, thank you both for sharing your time with me today. Thank you. Let me ask you some questions in turn about uh, your role at the Brookings Institution and, and where you see us going in our second century. Mr. Thornton, let me start with you. What motivated you to join the Brookings Board of Trustees and what has kept you involved with the institution for over a decade? Well, as I was explaining this morning, we had a, a town hall meeting uh, for years, going all the way back to high school, through college, and in graduate school. I had been introduced to Brookings Scholars and Brookings content in increasing levels of intensity and, uh, um, and uh, quality. And so by the time, many, many years later, I was asked to join the Board of Trustees by the then chairman, Jim Johnson, uh, I felt as though I knew Brookings very well, and it felt to me like a, a very familiar institution. Um, I've always been interested in the values of this place, which are trying to trying to have some kind of positive impact on public policy and on the nation. And then in the last 15 years or so, it's become an increasingly global institution. And so if one can use one's efforts to, in some way, make the world marginally better tomorrow than it is today, I think that's a good thing to do. And that's what this institution exists for. And that uh, lines up perfectly with my own um, my own interests, Mr. Rubenstein. A similar question in the context of your service on the boards of many nonprofit organizations, and Brookings is a nonprofit organization. What does serving on the Brookings board mean to you? Well, Brookings is, uh, I think, the grandfather of think tanks, and therefore, if you serve on the board that is a leading uh, think tank, um, you have some ability to have some impact on public policy. Obviously, the scholars are the ones who. Uh, develop the policies. The board is really designed to make certain that the institution well runs well. It has the funding necessary to make the scholars uh, independent and objective. But to the extent that a board member can do anything that helps in public policy, I think it's a good thing. And to the extent that uh, Brookings develops good public policies that makes the country and the government operate better, that's a good thing. So that's a motivating force for everybody who serves on the board. Let me ask you both a question about uh, perception, how Brookings is perceived by policymakers, the media, and the business community today. Uh, Mr. Thornton, you want to start with that? Well, the place that I most clearly see the impact of Brookings uh, is in China because I spent a lot of time in China and have done for the last 15 years. And uh, in my view, it's a bit ironic because Brookings is, is such a uh, national institution in the United States. And the impact of Brookings in the U.S. over the last 100 years has been significant. Uh, even so, the further away you get, it's uh, standing and its impact actually goes up because uh, the U.S. as a country is looked to for innovative ideas at certain kinds of institutions, including think tanks. And uh, as David just said, Brookings is the original think tank and has the standing and the reputation in China that's really second to none. 
China is itself trying to develop think tanks, literally as we speak. And uh, the Chinese government, of course, um, is the core institution of the country. And the party, the Communist Party, runs the government. So they are constantly, in fact, it's almost a signature quality of the Chinese leadership that they are constantly looking for the best ideas in a systematic way. And in that context, Brookings looks very good and is having a very material impact. Let me respond this way. Normally, if you have an institution that is clearly the best in its field, let's suppose uh, uh, you have a, the best university in the world or the best uh, corporation in the world, because they are so well regarded, they don't have to brag about it. It's often the people who are striving to go up the ladder who say, hey, look how good we are. So as an example, Harvard University, one of the best universities in the world, no doubt, doesn't brag about how many Rhodes Scholars it has or Nobel Prize winners because everybody knows that they do so well. And Brookings reflects that as well. We don't brag about the fact that uh, we are consistently rated the number one think tank in the world by the University of Pennsylvania survey that is done of think tanks every year. And uh, you know why don't we not do that? Well, maybe because we think people already know it and we don't really need to brag and, and pound our chest. But the truth is, that that is a survey of uh, scholars around the world, and they consistently rate us not only the best think tank, but the best in various areas, foreign policy, economic policy, and so forth. So uh, and Brookings really has a reputation that I think exceeds any other think tank in the world, and we're very proud to be part of it. For Again, for both of you, what is the most important thing that has happened during your uh, tenure on the Brookings board? Well, I alluded to it a minute ago. I think the most important uh really extension of what Brookings was doing previously, but in a very material way, has been making the institution much more global than it was previously. Uh, during my tenure on the board, we opened the first um, centers outside the United States, and uh, we now have got a number of them around the world, and that so is... That's, Qatar, Beijing, and now in New Delhi, India. Yes, but I think that's also uh, emblematic of a shift in emphasis and mindset, and of course that goes along with where, where the world is going. And from the standpoint of uh, the U.S. position in the world, uh, that is consistent with that, which is to say the world's becoming much smaller, much faster, uh, much more interrelated. And so Brookings has gone right along with that you know, very successfully. And I've, in fact, it's really the only think tank that's, I think, could, could uh, seriously claim to be a global think tank. Let me respond by saying um, I've been on the board less uh, time than, than John, but in my period of time, I would say the most significant thing I've seen is that the institution is very seriously focusing on in its second century. Uh, this, is, this year, 2016, is really the year that is our um, beginning of our second century. We started, I guess, in 1916, and actually, I guess, in October of 1916. So October of 2016 will actually mark 100th years. Um, when you get to 100 years, uh, um, you know, you can just rest on your laurels and say we're the best and so forth, and you don't need to focus on the future. But the truth is we're working very hard to make certain that the second century is even better than the first century. So we have a capital campaign that will give us much more money for our endowment and much more money for our scholars to do research. And we're working on a uh, plan that will enable us to, to focus our energies, collaborate much better, and make certain that going forward we have the energy, the youth, the, the vital uh, thoughts that we think can impact uh, government policy around the world and actually make, again, uh, government operate much better than it, than it does now. 
I'm looking forward to uh, September 2016 because I'll celebrate my 20th anniversary here, and I hope my second 20 years are better than my first 20 years. Let's talk about uh, Brookings in the context of, of the nation in Washington, D.C. What role does a venerable think tank like our own in this competitive environment uh, play in today's Washington? Mr. Thornton. Well, first of all, Brookings' core values are independence, quality, and impact. All institutions uh, have sets of values, and some uh, adhere to them better than others. And Brookings, over the course of 100 years, has shown itself uh, very capable of being who it says it is. Now, the reason I start there is because the value of those qualities, independent, rigorous thinking, quality research, the ability to affect public policy, those qualities are in increasing need for the nation at the moment. So the nation's in a bit of a, uh, like the world, in a bit of a uh, messy spot at the moment, as we're all aware. And uh, Washington has been less than smooth functioning now for a number of years. So in that context, the ability to stand out by the quality of your ideas and the independence of them and the ability to convene different kinds of people around the same table uh, is, of, is of increasing value. And so even though it's, uh, it feels very often as though uh, it's difficult to get things done, I think Brookings is one of the sort of islands of, uh, if I can put it this way, islands of sanity. So um, before I answer your question, what you said earlier was you hope your next 20 years was better than your last 20 years. What you meant was your last 20 years was spectacular, and if possible, you'd like it to be even better in the next 20 years. Is that right? That's precisely right. Thank okay. you. So um, it often is said that if a tree falls uh, in a forest and nobody's there to hear it, does it make any noise? Um, so if we had great scholars who were writing wonderful papers, but nobody read them or paid attention to them, would we be doing anything useful? I think the answer is no. So we are not really a, a monastery that is just trying to write um, something up and hope nobody pays attention to it and follow it away. We want to have impact. That's the whole purpose of what we're trying to do. So we uh, do have enormous impact, I think, in Congress and administration because they tend to listen to what we say. When we have policies or new reports, uh, we tend to give briefings to members of Congress, the staff, or people in the administration, and they're very avidly interested in those. Uh, we get requests for information all the time and for our views from the White House, from the administration, from members of Congress, and from the congressional staffs. You see presidents of the United States, former presidents of the United States, vice presidents of the United States, secretaries of state, secretaries of treasury coming to Brookings to speak. They don't come here because they think we have no impact. They want to influence what we say. And I think the fact that people are willing to come here does reflect the fact that we do have enormous amount of influence. We have to be very careful. We have to make certain, certain that our, our uh, influence is used appropriately. We are not lobbyists. Uh, we do not have a view, unlike some think tanks, that we want to have a particular point of view, a Republican point of view, a Democratic point of view, a liberal point of view, a conservative point of view. We want to have a scholarly point of view, give facts to people, and let them know about it, but we're not lobbying for, for particular legislation. We don't lobby for particular policies. We, we say, here is what our thoughts are, and we think because we're not seen as being partisan, we have a lot of impact, and I think that's a very useful thing for Brookings. One of the one of the emphases of uh, the centenary year is to is to look ahead. I mean, we have a ton of history that we rightly celebrate, but we're definitely looking ahead to the second century. Let's look ahead not quite that far. And can you think about and talk about um, what do you think Brookings will will look like in say ten or twenty five years? 
Well, I think, first of all, there'll be a lot of similarities to what exists at the moment. Uh, going back to what I said a minute ago, I think that the, the core enduring values will be exactly the same, quality, independence, and impact. The purpose of the institution will be exactly the same, that is to say, to affect uh, public policy in a positive manner in this country and around the globe. <clears throat> but the way in which it's done uh, will, will change. So, for example, the, uh, the introduction of social media over the last, uh, let's say, decade Undoubtedly, that'll become increasingly important and increasingly powerful. And so my guess is that the content that Brookings produces will reach many more people much faster and get into the marketplace of ideas much quicker. And uh, I think it'll, in the end, have a beneficial impact if you start with the premise I do that the ideas are, by and large, good ideas. Uh, secondly, I think that uh, as, as much impact as we, as we have had to date, it will become increasingly clear that that the scholars we have will both want to and see that see their purpose increasingly as having an impact, and so uh, whereas uh, as David was alluding to a minute ago, whereas in the past um, we we have a sort of spectrum between uh, intellectual content that sits on the shelf at one end of the spectrum, and uh, let's say uh, high impact ideas that are driven to uh, be implemented by uh, a specific set of scholars, I think over time that the institution will put a heavier emphasis on that because it'll be, that'll be the need. A couple of points I'd like to make. Uh, one is that in the future, I suspect Brookings, like other institutions of our type, will probably be more diverse in the number of people who, uh, and the type of people that are our scholars and on our board. Uh, diversity is a good thing, and I think we've moved uh, towards much greater diversity, but I think we can always do more. And institutions like ours will probably look much different in 10 or 25 years. Secondly, picking up on a point that John made earlier, we will be much more international. Uh, I, I think, I suspect we'll have centers in other places around the world in 10 or 25 years, and maybe other places in the United States as well. Uh, because of our brand name and because we're so well regarded, I think we can afford to to build uh, new um, centers around the rest of the world and others in the United States. And to point in 10 to 25 years from now, I suspect there'll be many different uh, Brookings operations. And I think that uh, we will probably also uh, be more influential with respect to the public. We have generally a small group of people that we tend to focus on in terms of influence or government policymakers. But increasingly, people will recognize that you need to influence the grassroots if you're going to influence public policymakers. So increasingly, we'll probably have more and more programs to let the public at large, not just in Washington or New York or San Francisco or Los Angeles, but other cities in the United States and around the world, let them know what we're doing, and maybe they will have some uh, influence on government policymakers themselves. And I think we'll probably have more focus on that as well in the future. Let me uh, dive very briefly into something that might seem like uh, a bit of inside baseball to some listeners, and that it has to do with the Brookings strategic plan that's coming out. But I want to focus on the, 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 the watchword, the main uh, emphasis of that, which is governance. Could you both speak to what the role of governance is uh, for Brookings moving forward? Strategic plans, for those who may not focus on them, are plans that organizations, profit or nonprofit organizations, put together every so often five or ten years to kind of make certain that everybody in the institution is pulling on the same uh, page and also uh, focused on the same way to move forward. And they often have a very good impact, but they also say to the constituents, in our case the scholars, the donors, the uh, members of uh, Congress, the people in the administration, what we're all about and what we're trying to do. 
And the word governance is useful in two sense. One, we want to make sure we are governed as an institution much better than, than before. Even though we think we've been governed well, we can always do better and make sure that we are um, doing the kind of things that we tell other people to do. We tell other people, you should govern yourself better. We want to make sure we're governed well. But I want to remind everybody that when Brookings was set up in 1916. It was set up to make certain that the government of the United States was governed better. It was designed to make people uh, operate our existing government better. And then, of course, we've branched out. We do other things. We say, here's what public policy should be in foreign policy or domestic policy or economic policy. But the initial focus of of Brookings was to make certain that what we already have is is operated better. And I think part of our strategic plan would be say, we want to make sure that government is operated better in the future and other institutions, as, as John mentioned. We want to make sure that all institutions, but particularly government, operates better. Not just the U.S. government, but governments around the world. And that's part of what we want to do in our strategic plan. Well, um, look, I think it's, it's perfectly obvious right now at a particularly poignant stage that many, many institutions, many venerable ones, uh, have not shown themselves in the greatest light in the last decade or two. Uh, this morning I made the comment that um, one of the reasons in our current U.S. presidential election that you have so-called outsiders doing so well is because ordinary people feel, and I think they feel correctly, that uh, there's been too much systemic corruption among the elites. And so what the message is being sent is, uh, we, the ordinary people, don't trust the elites to look out for the interest of the overall. You've been looking out too much for yourself at the expense of us. And in that context, that, that sort of demands a material overhaul of the governance of institutions, both uh, inside the United States and outside the United States. And I think the direction of that only goes one way. That is to say that the underlying qualities that lead to better governance will be increasingly emphasized and of course, there'll always be these kinds of crises every X number of years, but but the trend goes in a positive direction. As we as we exit this uh, this interview, uh, I want to ask both of you just to think in, in the broadest terms possible, very big picture. What is the value of the Brookings Institution to you personally and to the nation, to the world? Look, the value of the Brookings Institution, uh, if you look back to over the last hundred years and you wanted to sort of step back from it, and you can predict in the next 100 years the same thing will be true, that from time to time, one or other scholars come up with ideas that materially change for the better the course either of the nation or the, of the world. And probably the single easiest example of that was the, the fact that Brookings was very involved and were seminal thinkers in the establishment of the United Nations. That's just one example, but I could, I could point to 10 others. So if, if you want to look at it that way, uh, that's, uh, that's its big impact. And then in between those uh, large ideas are many smaller ideas, if I can put it that way, that happen year to year, month to month, week to week, that also make a difference. So what is the purpose of a think tank? Why was it created in 1916, and why do we think we should have a second century? Well, if you're in government, you are forced day to day to operate in certain uh, ways. You have to deal with constituents. You have to deal with elections. You have to deal with all the things that make governments work well or not well in many cases. If you are a business, you have to deal with your day-to-day -day concerns. If you're, if you're a, uh, 
uh, university, you have to deal with your day-to-day concerns, but also in universities, you have scholars who have to teach as well as do research. What we're trying to do at Brookings is to say, we don't have a teaching function necessarily with students. We obviously educate people, but what we want is scholars who can take unvarnished views on things without uh, the, the press of, of somebody saying, we want you to come up with a certain policy that tilts one way or the other, but we want people to look at things without um, economic considerations and say, based on your scholarly um, instincts, based on your knowledge, based on your experience, what is the best thing that U.S. government can do or a foreign government can do? And therefore, the value that we have is when we say to a government, we're coming up with a policy, here's what it is, or to some institution in, in Washington or around the world, they will say, well, you have an unvarnished view. It's not affected by somebody who might have given you money, it's not affected by your bias, it's unbiased, and therefore we'll take it very seriously. So what think tanks should do is be able to say, we can give you an unvarnished, very uh, nonpartisan uh, view of what is a good policy, and you, the government people, can decide whether to do it or not, but we're giving you the best advice you can get which, isn't been bought, which hasn't been bought or isn't, isn't biased or partisan. And that's what I think a very, very valuable thing that we do. Well, Mr. Rubenstein, Mr. Thornton, thank you both for joining me today, and thank you both for your leadership of the Brookings Institution. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher, plus thanks to Carissa Nitschie, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahan, Rebecca Weiser, and our intern, Sarah Abdel-Rahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. Remember to send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Deuce.